Most people can tell you what's right and what's wrong with their communities. And although they might not always agree, those same folks would probably have a few ideas about what needs to be done to address the most onerous problems. More often than not, though, the how part, the doing part, is a different story. How might all these ideas get sorted? How can the good ones get supported? And most importantly, how can they become a reality? In this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, we encounter one of those how stories. Our protagonist is a cultural organizer named Felicia Young. In it, we'll hear about her lifelong journey using arts-based strategies and tools to grab people's attention and spur community action. We'll hear how she helped save hundreds of New York's community gardens, clean up a sacred river in India, stymie one of America's most powerful politicians, bring attention to local solutions to the climate crisis, and most importantly, bring people together to make real change. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 1. Why? We join Felicia's journey in the hallowed halls of one of the world's largest and most respected cultural institutions as she ponders the question that will largely determine her life's course. How can something that is considered so wonderful, so enlightening, so exemplary, seem so wrong? This is the question that nagged youth program intern Felicia Young as she led a gaggle of young trainees through the Metropolitan Museum of Art's richly endowed African wing. I was 16, training 11-year-olds to give tours to 8-year-olds. I was interested in art history, which is why I took the internship. But what really struck me and got me thinking was I'm like, okay, I'm here in this gallery and in this world-famous museum, and I'm looking at these objects. But these objects weren't meant to be seen within this context. They were meant to be seen within the context of a socially functional ritual that had community importance. So whether it was agricultural cycles, funeral rites, or even healing ceremonies to impact a particular calamity or crisis within that community, it was transformational. And so that art object was really a means to get to another place, to either connect with an issue, confront an issue, or to bring people through some transitional transformation to a new place within their lives. For the curious and questioning Felicia, the contemporary art world represented in the Met's modern and contemporary art wings was equally troubling. Why, she wondered, is art that does come from this place and time seem so disconnected from the community in which it was created? this is in the early 80s, was the heart of the artist as art star, art market, schnabel, and all of that. And so I found that so empty. And that became the impetus for really thinking about why am I not seeing other art and culture that is doing that? Why are we being relegated to producing art for the marketplace? Why can we not have this kind of meaning within our own culture and community. And there's so many problems that are out there. Why can't we apply it? Everything I was surrounded with in New York was the opposite. It was the culture of a commercial art world. So of course, that became my quest in looking for other examples out there of how such art can be done and within the community and what form would that take. With these questions and concerns, one might think that Felicia was, well, down in the dumps, but she was not unhappy. She enjoyed school and had a passionate interest in art and poetry that was supported by her parents and fed by the cultural bounty that came with growing up in New York. That said, like many teenagers, she had a keen eye for incongruencies and contradictions. At the time I grew up in New York, It was highly polluted, and I used to go to the East River and just see floating garbage, and people used to talk about dead bodies. But generally, it was like we stayed away from the waterfront, and you would approach New York, and it would just be covered in smog. But then I saw, like, growing up, it was the establishment of the EPA, and we moved 
towards this consciousness about the environment. So I had those two things going on between being a product of a child growing up in a polluted city, but then seeing this trajectory that actually at the time of my childhood moved into a better place. When it came time for college, Felicia's interest in art and community and museums led her down a fairly predictable path that also led to a couple of unforeseen and very unpredictable tangents. So I go to college, I went to Skidmore, and I studied art history. And I did my junior year abroad in Italy and France, did research on the painter Jacques-Louis David, who was this painter who was doing portraits of Napoleon, but he was also staging these theatrical pageants for the French Revolution in the street and engaging hundreds of thousands of people. And many people didn't realize that even da Vinci and Bernini and all these other famous artists that we know of in the classical sense of their work were also engaged in many other public theatrical presentations that was largely ignored from my studies. So I got really excited about discovering that and the potential of here were these well-known artists, but nobody was talking about this other work, sort of revolutionary work they were doing. So that was my first looking at the theatrical pageant form as combining music, theater performance, visual art, dance, and community engagement. It marked all the boxes of an art form that I was looking for, and it certainly was happening out within the streets and with often social reform or political intent. And then my senior year, I decided to write my thesis on process art, and I was in an African art history class. So then I have all these things percolating in my head, and the professor is talking about this Mbari in Igboland, Nigeria. And it's an art form that this community in Nigeria will commit to in response to some social calamity. So it could be infant mortality or drought. And their response is to have a section of the community go into sort of a communal isolation and work under a shaman building this elaborate mud hut with sculptures. But it can take years of communal art making. And at the end of this process, reaching its pinnacle, they will say, okay, it's ready to reveal to the rest of the community who has been supported because they're obviously not working in the fields during that time. And then they walk, they have a huge celebration and then they walk away and leave it to decay. So that I was literally slapping the desk and saying, that's it, that's it, that is it. That is what I am looking for. I mean, here was an art form it had social purpose, it was engaged with community, it confronted a calamity. And at the end of it, even though there was, let's say, aesthetic ideals they were trying to achieve with the object that was being created communally, but at the end of it, it was really about the process. And I said, I don't know if I believe in the magic that you're going to cure smallpox by building a sculptural hut. But what I did see was that the solidarity of the community is strengthened through the process. So whatever calamity they're dealing with, they are now strengthened to be able to confront that crisis together. As you can hear, Felicia Young was resonating with one of the core issues raised by many of this show's guests. Namely, for humans, community and cooperation have never really been an option. In fact, without them, our species could hardly have survived. And for most of human history, what many people now think of as an entertaining street party or a festival or a concert has been an essential aspect of building human communities. In short, Collective art-making and community-making are intrinsically connected. Here's how community activist Carlton Turner put it back in the spring of 2022 on episode 47 of Change the Story, Change the World. And so, historically, all art was, it was for a purpose. It was for some type of gathering. It was either a birth or a death or a marriage or a visitor or... There is something that was happening that brought people together in these communal settings to engage in food and libations, 
conversations. And really, to me, that's culture. And what is produced out of that is dance and music and storytelling, the artifacts, the things that now have been extracted from those processes and become the things that get sold as products were just the natural expressions of culture in a healthy and fully functional community. As Felicia learned more about the patterns and structures that have evolved to support the human need for connection and collaboration and identity, she also recognized that the power of ceremony and ritual that she was studying could be harnessed for both good and for ill. I think, you know, ritual, ceremony, a lot of this art was created to connect people to a deeper understanding of the world around them, to the problems they face, and to imagine and envision a better future and hope and action towards that end and move people to another place. And it's such a powerful form. And art has always been integrated into it, ceremony and ritual. It could also be used for very destructive purposes, as we've seen in history. And it could also be used for empowerment and community and collaborative purposes. And it's who's creating the ritual and who's creating the ceremony. After graduation, Felicia landed a job at New York's Alternative Museum, founded by artists for artists in 1976, the museum's programming featured emerging artists who were digging into community issues such as homelessness and AIDS. While she loved the content, Felicia felt that the museum should do more to extend its programming into the surrounding community. While there, she organized a Dia de los Muertos street procession with a nearby women's shelter as part of a show on homelessness and AIDS. Through this project, she realized how much she enjoyed the organizing aspects of the work. In 1987, Felicia got an opportunity to hone her organizing skills working with Judson Church artist Phyllis Yampolsky. In the 1950s and early 60s, the Judson Church Dance Collective and the Judson Gallery comprised a multidisciplinary artist collective whose collective art making emphasized improvisation and a commitment to process over product. At the time, Yampolsky was working on a project to prevent the closing of an integrated public swimming pool in Brooklyn's Williamsburg neighborhood that was under pressure by racist community members. Through her involvement, Felicia found that pageants and festivals could be an effective organizing strategy that in this case ended up helping the more tolerant members of the community find their voice and each other. In 1989, Felicia made a pilgrimage to Calcutta, India to explore her own roots in her mother's home city and feed her newfound passion for pageants and festivals, most notably the Chitarai Festival and the Kumbh Mila Festival, which is the largest event of its kind in the world. While there, she was blown away by how this three-week citywide drama with its processions, ceremonies, and performances literally became the defining story for a temporary community of over 100 million souls. The experience left her with a profound understanding and respect for the potential power of mass community spectacle and pageantry. Part two, gardens. When she returned to New York, she was excited to continue her community-focused work. This time, though, with a new emphasis on rituals and ceremonies that not only built new connections, but also created tangible benefits for the broader community. Yeah, so then I came back to New York. I'm living on the Lower East Side. There were all these endangered community gardens in my neighborhood. And down the street from me, I knew people who tried to save what is famously known as the Garden of Eden. It was featured in National Geographic. It was known worldwide. It consisted of a yin-yang design and concentric circles. You could see it from an aerial view from space, practically. And it was a magnificent sort of outsider artwork in, a, in itself but it were unsuccessful and it was bulldozed. And so there was over 60 community gardens that had been created out of neglected rubble-strewn lots that was really city neglect out of the 70s. I mean, the Lower East Side looked like a war zone. 
and just abandoned buildings, vacant lots, shack, dead bodies would be found. They were dens for drug and drugs and crime. And finally, people in the community had enough with it and they started building these magnificent gardens. So the thought that all of these gardens that the community had created now as we were going into the 90s and the economy began to pick up, they were being targeted for development. And so here I had now invested these years of practicing a little bit of the form and reality and doing this research. And there I am living in the midst of a neighborhood crisis. And this is pre-cell phone. People barely had answering machines. If you lived on First and Second Avenue, you never went over to Alphabet City and Avenue B. You didn't even know the gardens existed. There was no social media. There was no way for the community to tell its story unless the New York Times was covering it. It just seemed obvious. Oh, my God, I've got to try and do this. But did I know it would work? Did I know how I could possibly execute this? I just started going to show up at garden meetings. I would have to go up and down the streets to see flyers of when those garden meetings were, right? No social media. Show up, tell people, hey, you want it? The gardens are not protected. We lost the Garden of Eden. All these people, their heart, their soul, like 25 years of work had been put into these spaces. It changed the community around completely. And now, after all this effort, it was going to be taken away. It touched the deepest sense of emotions and people willing to do what they could to fight. But how? And how do we tell our story? So when I said, I have this crazy idea, but let's put on a pageant, a procession. It's going to be all day long, eight hours. It'll go to 45 community gardens. And at each garden that we go to, the community gardens can tell their story. They can tell it through song, through poetry, through a skit, or they can just simply speak. They can cry. They can just say what they need to say. And you know what? We'll also go to the gardens that have been bulldozed. We'll have memorials. We'll honor what was. And we'll have a photo. So it started out with a pretty simple idea. I had people coming up to my rooftop to build things. We had no money. It didn't start with, oh, I'm going to get a grant. I'm going to get support. I'm going to do this. No, I'm going to do this. I got the people. Everybody wanted to do it. I had literally thousands of people the first year. I had community centers and churches and the gardens. So it was after that first year procession where by doing it, I was doing already a form of organizing because I had to get to know each of the gardeners through the process of creating the pageant. So I began to have phone numbers of all the gardens And then people immediately after the first pageant started planning for the next one. So that was when I realized, oh, this is not a one of thing. I can't walk away from this now. But I never had the idea that it would take over the rest of my life or that project would go on for 15 years. And as we're going year to year, the gardens became more and more in danger. Nobody else had the phone numbers of all the gardens. So what the pageant had done was essentially built the coalition by going to garden and garden. So instead of gardeners existing isolated within their own spaces, they were now connected to each other. And the story of that struggle was being told, not just to the core stakeholders of gardeners, who of course cared about the issue, but did the other residents care about the issue? By creating the story and putting it in the streets and having people go to each site and connect with what the story was about each of these sites, the loss of sites, and why we need to save these gardens. More and more people got involved in the effort. And then over the years, as the gardens became endangered, we realized we would get community board meeting minutes and we'd discover that gardens were going up for development But nobody was notifying the gardeners. They were listed like only as block and lot numbers. And somebody in the city gave us 
like the translation of block and lots to what actual sites they were. And it was like going through that every month to find the needle in a haystack and then notifying people to show up at the community board to protest and write letters. So as the gardens became more endangered, we were doing the cultural pageant and we were doing traditional organizing. We were doing research and mapping and showing up at city hall and showing up at community board meetings. We needed both because I've definitely seen that if you do just the traditional organizing, it can either have an angry, divisive form of communication and that doesn't bring the people in to build a sort of broad-based movement and effort. And I think many more people got involved with the issue and connected with it, not just because it was being framed as, oh, come to a protest. I mean, honestly, it's a miracle story because the pageant over the years and going back to the model of this pageant in India that told this story, we wanted to have a kind of overall storyline to it, as well as the individual stories and struggles of each garden. So we enacted the, the battle with developers that is what we were up against. And every year, the children in the neighborhood put on butterfly wings. And then someone in the neighborhood grew butterflies from caterpillars, and we released them at the end of the day. So the butterfly children and nature spirits symbolically save the gardens every year. We're enacting what we aim to achieve. But who would have thought that in reality, when you're up against the biggest real estate interests in New York, that you're going to be successful? Defining success in community-wide movement work can be extremely difficult, particularly when the landscape you are organizing in is constantly shifting. For New York's Community Garden Initiative, the tenuous nature of the work became a stark reality when the gardens caught the attention of Mayor Rudolph Giuliani near the end of his first term. Over the years, we lost some gardens, we saved some. But then it really came to a head when Mayor Giuliani went after all the gardens from throughout New York City. So there were like over 800 gardens. Luckily, that was back in the day, you could call information and get people's home phone numbers. So yeah, we said, we've got to meet. Hundreds of people showed up for a meeting in November of 96. And we formed overnight a New York City Garden Preservation Coalition. And that was very powerful. So it went from being a Lower East Side locally successful effort, saving a few gardens here and there, to all of a sudden recognizing our story is a citywide story. And collectively, together, we represent all these communities throughout all the boroughs of New York, and many of the people have been sitting on the sidelines, including celebrities and philanthropists, the real power players in New York, were all of a sudden taking our call, meeting with us, and they were willing to speak out. People didn't want to take a position counter to the mayor's position. But I think there was a change when we represented this constituency throughout all the boroughs. And then that led to, in 1999, Bette Midler got involved and the Rockefellers and Trust for Public Land and 114 gardens got bought out of a like negotiated deal out of a land auction. And then in 2002, Mayor Bloomberg, day one as mayor, he unilaterally transferred hundreds of gardens out of city-owned housing preservation and development where they sit ready to be developed into the New York City Parks Department. It was a magical resolution that I never could have envisioned happening at all. I think he had a sort of green vision for New York, maybe being independently wealthy. He was less beholden to the real estate interests in New York, but it would not have happened without the power of the coalition building that really got developed through this cultural project. Part three, water. Given the quixotic nature of arts funding, most of the community arts initiatives we study here at the center are episodic. The ones that are sustained tend to have deep roots, which, like the Garden Coalition, were nurtured in a way that allowed the individual garden stories to find each other and connect much the same way tree roots do naturally under the earth. Another aspect of successful cultural organizing 
is that the skills and relationships that accrue from one initiative become a valuable community resource that can be brought to bear on other issues. Felicia's next chapter is a case in point. So once we had the success of the preservation of the gardens in 2002, I kept that pageant going for a few more years. And then I felt this experiment worked and how can these strategies be applied to other issues? So I worked on a river restoration project on the Hudson River for a few years and then spontaneously decided to go back to India that in 1989 had inspired me. I had documented the Chitrai Festival, which tells the story of this earthly queen who marries the Lord Shiva. And the storyline is enacted over an entire city and neighboring villages with large sculptural effigies, processions every day. It goes on for three weeks and millions of people participate. It's been going on since the 1500s. The king who developed that storyline, it was a peacemaking effort to bring the warring factions of the urban and rural warrior groups together. So I go back 25 years later spontaneously, and the people I had interviewed during my research with a giant VHS video camera were now like in their 60s. I mean, this was crazy. 25 years had passed. They are. They were leading scholarly research. I had met them at the American College in Madurai, and they picked me up at, from the airport, and I hadn't seen them in all of these years. And within a few minutes of going to some hotel to get a drink, he starts telling me, oh, Felicia, you haven't seen the state of the river, the Vaigai River. And I said, what? I mean, it looked fine 25 years ago. The whole festival centers on the river and the crossing of the river. And he says, no, it's really in bad shape. I mean, this area in India is so severely impacted by climate and severe drought. And what little water is there is highly polluted. And there's been very little effort to really turn this situation around. And I said, that's really strange because I just... All my experience here in Madurai inspired me to do these pageants to save the gardens. And then I recently did this pageant to engage people on restoration efforts of the Hudson River. I said, maybe we should do a Vaigai River restoration pageant. So I just say things without understanding (laughs) that the next two years of my life are going to be taken over with actually making that happen. So I, after spending several weeks there and meeting people, I come back to New York. And the more that I think about it, one of the things that was missing in the crisis of this river is that the community was not being engaged, that the municipality would get pay people to occasionally pick up garbage and take it out of the river. There was no recycling program in the town. People were just using it as a toilet. And there was no education that is communicating with the local population to move it to another place. So that was what got me, the missing link, that community engagement piece. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't walk away from this. I really think this can be helpful. And I'm not imposing something from the West. It's not an idea of mine from the West. This is something I took from them and have used to good purpose. Maybe if I bring this idea of their own cultural traditions and art form that can be applied to their local crisis, they're going to get it. So through Shaker, my friend in India, he introduces me to the largest NGO that's dealing with poverty and rural issues and urban issues and water. And the heads of this large organization says, absolutely, let's do it. They got it. But he says, now you go raise half the money to do this project. So I think there was a bit of them looking at me like I'm bringing resources that I didn't really have at all. And their perception of what I represent. And they also knew that I, my mother was from India And I had discovered that I actually had family buried in that town. So it became this whole sort of magical element, like who is this woman who doesn't look Indian, who's actually half Indian, who has family that are buried across from the railway station that I discovered, who all died of cholera in 1801. 
So I'm the first one in my family to discover the graves. And that story actually ended up in the Times of India. So I go there and I get a lot of attention. It would have been harder for me to do this as a local Indian. It was a lot easier coming as the outsider and having people say, what is this about? And who is she? And what is this family story? And I think the mystical element in India of what that means. I mean, you had the head magistrate say, if this woman can come from New York City with this important message, it's our duty to do this. So I had all this stuff projected in terms of propelling this project forward. And then I'm like, where am I going to get the money? With these high expectations driving her, Felicia returned to New York to try to answer that question. As one might imagine, raising money in New York to help clean up a river in southeast India can be a challenge. But Felicia was determined and began by tapping into the New York network she had developed over the years. But given that New York's own problems were not insignificant at the time, Madurai's dying stream did not seem to be a priority. That is, until she hit pay dirt. Only one person out of a long list of connections called me back. And that was Professor Gita Mehta from Columbia University, who has an organization, Asia Initiatives, that does women empowerment, very important projects around the world and in Asia. And she's also a professor at the Urban Design and Architecture Program at, in, at Columbia. So she said, I meet with her 15 minutes later, she said she had heard of that organization and she pledged $20,000 to also bring her methodology of social capital credits in into the project. So there I said, okay, that in India, that's a lot of money. That was half the budget. And I go back to India to launch the project for Gandhi's birthday in October, and then go back again in December. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but I can't believe I could see how the process could be adapted. So I said, who I had said, who are the stakeholders? Who are the organizations? Who are the schools? And then they don't really have as much of an individual, independent artist community. But what they have are artisans who've been carrying that craft through family generations for hundreds of years. So whether it's Sungudi Sari dyeing or the making of clay pots and sculptures, a whole village or a whole town will just be the potters. They will make the pots and then they get hired by the temples to make the little statuary. So they were used to working with that traditional iconography, but then I was able, through these meetings we would have with the stakeholders, tell them about the idea of the pageant and they were all, oh yes, great, we can adapt the imagery. But they were challenged, How? what kind of images do we create and how do we adapt it? So we came up with a fusion idea where I was able to get students from some of the architectural schools to help envision some of the actual design work. And then the craftsmen felt more comfortable incorporating some of those designs. So we took different traditions of dance, different traditions of music, and many of these visual arts, even bamboo sculpture, and worked it into a pageant, which again was rooted in the sites along the riverfront. And even though I can only periodically come to India, we use Skype. So I was able to communicate with a locally hired director there. So it really became a project that they were directing on the ground. So yeah, that was a year and a half. It had about 50 different community partners. And then in April of 2015, it resulted in an actual cultural pageant with 5,000 people marching along the riverfront. You had the governor of Tamil Nadu there sanctioning the event. The mayor also sanctioned the event. And out of this cultural pageant, then declare a city-appointed panel for the actual restoration efforts of the river and the waterfront. So that was where, okay, I started with the idea of spontaneously reacting to something sort of personal. I go back to India and see this. Maybe this can help getting a positive response 
following through, building the partnerships and artwork until the point we get to an enacted community pageant. But I couldn't foresee that we would get these actual results. So you get the panel, then I leave India. After that, thousands of people continue with monthly full moon ceremonies to reconnect themselves to the waterfront and doing cleanups on a regular basis. And this officially appointed panel continues. And over the course of a number of years, by the time you got to maybe 2018, 2019, finally Madurai gets recognized on the national level as a smart city of India. And billions of rupees get allocated to that city as a smart city of India for the river restoration effort. So you never know when you start something, you share your idea where it's going to end up. Was it just going to be a cultural pageant and that's it? I couldn't predict the things that happened. And also in a short period of time, because if you look at the garden pageants, I put 15 years of my life into that before we got that kind of amazing result. And it may not have even happened. And then in that case, in India, it was like a year and a half of an effort that resulted in some of these things. And then the next few things happened over the next years when I wasn't even involved with the project. Felicia gives the impression that this extraordinary outcome is a product of serendipity, and luck. And to a certain degree, that's true. But there's much more going on here than the luck of the draw. Felicia is an effective cultural community catalyst because she has an innate understanding of what it takes to help plant and germinate new ideas and actions that have a lasting impact in a community. She is an insatiable learner who brings both self-confidence and humility to the task at hand, She has both a generous spirit and a willingness to ask others to go the extra mile and share their own good fortune. She is also persistent in her faith in the venerable power of ritual and celebration to help create the deep relationships that are needed to turn good intentions into meaningful change. And finally, she recognizes that change will not happen unless the people who will ultimately bear the consequences of an initiative's success or failure own the story of its making. Part four, climate. Another intangible element of Felicia's remarkable journey is her drive to take on new community challenges. A case in point is how she built on her previous work in the gardens to help New York City address climate change. I came back from India and I started just looking around what was happening back in my own neighborhood. And it was post-Hurricane Sandy. So after Hurricane Sandy, completely devastated a lot of New York, lower Manhattan, and especially the Lower East Side. And out of that, you have this East Side Coastal Resiliency Project, like how are we going to deal with the climate impacts of flooding? In the 90s, the gardens that we had preserved. We're preserving vital open space, a place for community to gather, park space, nature. We weren't thinking about climate. We weren't thinking about the gardens in that way at all. It just wasn't in our vocabulary at the time. So that was what Hurricane Sandy changed because the gardens being permeable surfaces absorbed the flood water. So again, that was an overnight recognition that these spaces mitigated that flooding. They absorbed these waters. And not only that, all of a sudden it became a whole new way of looking at the gardens. Look at how the gardens are mitigating climate in so many ways. They're within an urban setting, sequestering carbon. They have ponds that are collecting rainwater. They, uh, many of them are filtering pollutants from runoff that would normally go into the river and the trees filtering the air as well as the gardens also cool, lead to the natural cooling in the areas immediately where they are. So that recognition of, okay, we have climate, but wow, had we not preserved the gardens, we would have not had this post-Sandy resilience. 
So they were given a federal grant out of post-Hurricane Sandy funds to enhance the green infrastructure that already existed within the gardens. So it was like a million dollars that was now being input into this very grassroots network. So I looked at that. I looked at other neighborhood solutions that were coming to life. People were trying to set up community solar projects on rooftops. The community center where I had been based had a rooftop bee farm growing. And the earth school down the street, which is a public school, had a green roof where they were growing vegetables with the kids. And then you had the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project being developed in design plans with the community along the waterfront, all to be like, how is New York City? Like, how are we going to, are we going to build a seawall berm? Are we going to build flood walls? What are we going to do? But billions of dollars, largest redevelopment plan in New York was underway. So, yeah, I looked at that aerial view and could see this sort of ecosystem of inspiring climate solutions. And then that became the storyline for the continuing of the pageant. Now we've saved the, many of the gardens, but now let the powers that be in the city recognize these gardens and the network of solutions that are being community generated. So even though we had saved many gardens in the past, it didn't make it any easier. Gardens were still, other gardens that weren't under parks protection were still slated to be demolished. New York City is officially has a, has a law that was passed to uphold the Paris Climate Agreement, meaning we have to not increase temperatures beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius. And in order to do that, they say, oh, we have this billion dollar plan and that billion dollar plan. But at the same time, they're destroying the solutions that the community is creating. So now they're willing to put money into building what we don't have, but destroy what we already do have that was generated with hardly any investment of money or community effort. So it's just, again, that opposition between top-down planning and recognition of all this ingenuity that I call urban improvisation. Felicia's response to this twisted logic has been to organize a community-wide pageant to highlight the community ingenuity, creating hyperlocal solutions to climate change. The pageant, called Earth Celebrations, Ecological City, Procession for Climate Solutions, took place on May 14, 2022. When we spoke in April of 2022, the pageant was in the final hectic stages of development. A lot of it is being created right now in workshops twice a week. So all of the workshops that we do for months develops visual sculptural puppets as well as wearable costumes that are highly intricate and detailed. So one of them is a climate drawdown cape that Paul Hawkins' book draw down. We're basically taking the book and turning it in to a costume, which is involved a lot engaged students and people in researching that actual data material that's provided in the book and then turning it into a visual form into this costume with people quilting as a collaborative artwork, this elaborate cape that will be worn. Here is Paul Hawken describing Project Drawdown in 2019 at the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies. In 2013, Bill McKibben wrote a piece in Rolling Stone called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And I had many friends who were literate, active, effective with respect to climate who came to me and used the same word over and over again, which is, it's game over. In other words, we blew it. And I had a different response. I felt like sometimes when you give up and surrender, it's game on. (laughs) And I welcome, actually, the, uh, ironically and paradoxically, the despair that you see rising up because I feel like there's an openness there that wasn't there before. So what happened is Drawdown started in 2014 to map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And the first thing I wanted to do was name the goal. If we don't name the goal... We're not going to achieve it. Mitigation is not a goal. Fighting is not a goal. 
A crusade is not a goal. Combating, tackling, these verbs that are used are not goals. What's the goal? The goal is to reverse global warming, to reverse emissions. So let's name it. And the second thing is, can we achieve it? And since we had no money to hire scientists, we put out the word all around the world for Drawdown Fellows. These people are from 22 countries, six continents, and they basically wrote master's theses on each solution. So we were a collaborative. It wasn't somebody knowing or doing and saying what they think. It was a group of us coming together and saying, what do we know? You know can we learn together? Can we discover something that hasn't been brought forth, which is what it is we know, actually. So the solutions we modeled exist. We know how to do them. What we did, basically, is hold up a mirror to the world and saying, this is what you know. This is what we know. And this is what we're doing. What Felicia Young and her hundreds of collaborators were plotting was to describe and animate these solutions in the real world through the vitality and flash of a celebratory ritual procession. And then the procession goes through the streets for five hours with 15-foot puppets representing climate drawdown, zero waste, carbon sequestration, bioswales, coastal resiliency to 20 different sites. Each site, that's 12 gardens. It's the rooftop beef farm, the green roof, and then five sites along the waterfront. And each site has a performance. So you see music, performance, poetry, theater, that will tell the story of that solution in one of these visual formats, like a five-minute ceremony. So it's not just a performance. It turns into a ceremony where the gardeners offer water from their garden that's put into a big bowl that's later offered to the river at the end of the day. They receive this bioremediation amulet that enhances the nutrients, beneficial nutrients for the soil to their garden. So it's a gift exchange. And then there's a presentation in some artistic form about the actual solution that's at that site. So it's not just random. I mean, we're at a water harvesting pond. There's a water song. We're at, there's a dance about solar at one of the gardens that has a solar microgrid. There's a song about, a poem about sustainable agriculture at a garden that's known for food growing and vertical farm. So each of the sites enhances that solution. And you go on this journey. So it's, I call it like an urban ecological pilgrimage. Now, in India, they go on for three weeks. This one is five hours long. So there's a bit of endurance required. And people could come. They could come for an hour and leave, or they can do the whole day. That experience is transformative because you're going from the chaotic urban streets and then going into the tranquility of the gardens, connecting to what each of them has to offer within this larger knitted together ecosystem. And at the end of the day, we get to the waterfront. Yeah, and then celebrate the different aspects of coastal resiliency. So on May 4th, 2022, the procession for climate solutions became a reality. Here's a bit of what it sounded like. American New Yorker. I'm a native New Yorker. But I follow my tradition. Native Americans have been always an environmentally concerned people for generations before the European arrived. Oh, no. 
I think that's it. That the arts provide this safe zone where people can experiment with new ideas and envision something that doesn't maybe already exist or affirm something that's often ignored and do that collectively and publicly. But then it's within that theatrical framework. But when that ends, like the end of the pageant, the action and the collaboration and the connections and the partnerships continue. So just like with the garden pageants, the forming of that coalition and the friendships and the partnerships enable the community to continue those connections dealing with any number of issues within the neighborhood. So those social connections and network is enhanced to go on and do many things within a neighborhood. So I always feel that's like the process. That doesn't dissipate. That doesn't go away. And then you have very real things, like we have this East River Park spirit. The community had worked on a vision plan for the Coastal Resiliency Project that then got trashed by the mayor. So we had to go to planning commission hearings at City Hall. And we brought that spirit, the character, in and presented the character as creative testimony. That was submitted into City Hall documentation for planning. So when people look, I say, it's not just like the end result of you got garden saved or you got this policy change, but you're changing the whole fabric of how a community collaborates and communicates with each other. They also learn different approaches to addressing issues. They're learning resource sharing and collaboration across communities in the Lower East Side. We have a Latino community, we have a Chinatown, you have people with special interests, you've got activists, you've got middle-class family, you've got so many different kinds of people with many opposing viewpoints, very free-thinking neighborhood. But if you can find those common points, you build real-life friendships, you build collaborations across those divisions, and that changes the way a community works going forward. The recurring theme in all of Felicia's work has been to use catalytic events to create ripples of awareness, learning, relationships, and commitment that lead to substantive change. This means that events like the procession on climate solutions is just the beginning. This, I think, is the most powerful recurring ripple in Felicia Young's rambunctious story. As she has described, her work explores the structures and dynamics of human connection. This is particularly important for a hyper-commodified society such as ours that is literally losing touch with its capacity to make community. The most precious products of this kind of work are the real-life friendships that emerge the human connections that will, of course, be needed to create the next set of change-provoking stories. For our regular listeners, you'll no doubt agree that this is one of the most persistent themes that we share on this show. It's a pretty simple narrative. Making art together, making stories together, builds deep trust in capable, resilient communities. But as we know, the doing is a bit more complicated, as is the doing that produces this show, which we hope you have enjoyed and will recommend to your friends, and if you have any, your enemies. This has been another episode of Change the Story, Change the World. We're a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. The show is written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland, and our theme and soundscape are by the stupendous Judy Munson. Our editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.com and our inspiration rises up from the mysterious but ever-present presence of Ook 235. Until next time, please stay well, do good, and spread the good word.